Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I know that applause obviously isn't for me. Uh, my name is Colm Lennan. I work for Edinburgh City Libraries. I'm delighted to welcome you to the main theatre at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. A couple of small housekeeping arrangements. First of all, can you please turn off your mobile phones? Uh, secondly, um, can you make sure that you hold on to your raffle tickets? That will become very important at the end. Um, and I'm going to get off stage now, and I just uh, want to leave it to welcome back Jacqueline Wilson uh, to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's so lovely for me to be back in Edinburgh, even though it's pouring with rain <laughs> right this moment, because I was ill last year and missed it. And Edinburgh, as some of you have heard me talk before, know it's my favourite place. This is my favourite festival, and it's absolutely great to be here. Now, oh, thank you. Now, you're all here because you like reading. And obviously, I love reading too. But I wonder how many of you in the audience like writing too? Who likes writing stories? Isn't that lovely? Um, now, you won't be surprised to know that when I was your age, I liked writing stories too. And I wrote lots of stories at home. <clears throat> I used to go to Woolworths. Sadly, Woolworths no longer exists, but I used to love going to Woolworths. They had a big stationery counter, and I would choose all these lovely, shiny notebooks. And then every Saturday, when I'd spent my pocket money on a notebook, I'd sit down when my dad had sport blaring on the telly and curl up in a corner and start writing what I said was my new book. And of course, I never, ever finished a book. I never even finished half of a Woolworths exercise book, but I was always trying, even then, to write stories. And I also loved writing stories at school. And occasionally, if a teacher felt I'd done a really good story, he would invite me to go out to the front of the class and read my story to all the other children, which was a little bit shy-making, but I felt very proud, too. And it was just as well I was good at writing stories, because I was completely rubbish at everything else at school. I was one of these children, I have never, ever learnt how to do those maths problems where you have, you know, six men digging a hole in a field, and if, if it takes them 14 days, how long will it take seven and a half men, this sort of thing. I just never, ever learnt how to do that. I always came bottom in maths, and I was also absolutely hopeless at any kind of games or sport or PE. Now, if I woke up in the morning and I heard rain like this, I would just say, thank you, God, because then we didn't have to do rounders or netball. We could do country dancing, and I actually liked country dancing. But when we actually had to go out and play any games with the sports mistress. It was so humiliating because although I was quite popular at school, everybody fought not to have me on their team. I'll have anyone, but not Jackie, they'd say, because I couldn't catch a ball, I couldn't throw a ball, I couldn't run fast to save my life. So with all these different things that I couldn't do, it was wonderful that I had one thing that I actually shone at and that was writing stories. And then I went off to my secondary school at the age of 11, which you do in England, 
And um, it was actually a brand new school. It had only just been built. And unfortunately for me, I didn't know anybody else from my old primary school going to the new school. So I was a bit scared about it. But I did think to myself, I went to have a look in the summer holidays of what it was like, and saw this great shiny new building. And I thought slightly madly, this is my turn to become a new shiny person myself. I'm going to change myself. Somehow or other, something's going to go click inside my head and I'm going to become good at maths and I'm suddenly be going, to, going to become really, really sporty and I'm going to be the games captain. And I had all these grand ideas of how somehow or other some magic would work and I would be this different person at this different new school. Well, not surprisingly, by the end of a week or two, I was bottom at maths. I was absolutely hopeless at all kinds of sports, including we now had to play the dreaded hockey. And, you know, that was terrifying as well as humiliating. And much, much more disconcertingly, I suddenly didn't seem to be any good at writing stories. Because we're in secondary school, it wasn't called story writing. We had to write essays. But the principle was exactly the same. But my trouble was, I kept on getting bad marks. We had an English teacher called Miss Pierce, and she was an excellent teacher, and she told me all sorts of books that she thought I would like. She was wonderful in that respect, but my goodness, she was so strict when it came to marking our essays, mine in particular. I'd try really hard to impress her, and yet when she gave my essay back and I'd look at it, my heart would sink because it was covered all over with that red teacher's marking pen. And in the margin, she'd put little comments like slang or too colloquial or I don't like your tone, Jacqueline, or even highly unsuitable, see me. And I got very upset and downcast and thought, well, Miss Pierce doesn't think I'm ever, ever, ever going to be a good writer. Now, in actual fact, if Miss Pierce were still alive now and I gave her a copy of one of my books, I think she'd open it up, she'd reach for that red pen and she'd be slang, too colloquial, I don't like your tone, Jacqueline. I simply wasn't writing the sort of thing that would um, please an old-fashioned schoolteacher. And so, at school, nobody thought I had any chance whatsoever of being a writer. And at home, sadly, my mum and dad thought I was ridiculous wanting to be a writer. I mean, my mum did classically say once, who on earth would want to read one of your books? And so, actually, I think it's rather a good thing to have parents who don't give you lots of encouragement because it makes you more determined than ever, somehow or other, to make it yourself, just to show them. But it didn't look as if I was going to achieve my ambition. And at 16, sadly, the sort of um, background I came from, you didn't go on to university. You generally went out to work. But my mum had ambitions for me, and she thought the ideal job for me was to be a secretary. Now, I didn't want to be a secretary, but she thought, right, we'll take you, you can go and have an extra year at technical college, and then you can start earning your living as a young lady secretary. 
Well, I did my course at the Technical College and I hated doing shorthand, I hated doing typing and I thought I really, really, really don't want to be a secretary. And I wasn't even very good at it. My shorthand skills were, were very limited indeed. I wasn't a fast typer. So I started to look through the papers looking for job adverts really, really depressed, thinking, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be able to find a job for myself. And then I saw an advert right at the bottom of the page, after all these junior shorthand typists, junior secretary um, adverts, there was one, and it was in a sort of outlined in a box, and it said, wanted teenage writers. And I, I just stared at it, absolutely unbelieving. And I thought, well, I'm a teenager and I desperately want to be a writer. So I wrote off for more information from the box office number and it was the wonderful newspaper and magazine firm, DC Thompson's, and they, I'm sure you know, they, they publish lots of papers, lots of magazines and lots of wonderful comics like the Beano and the Dandy. And they did do some teenage magazines already but they had decided that they wanted to bring out the first full-colour teenage magazine. And they wanted to gather lots and lots of material for it. And there was a whole leaflet of suggestions of how you, they, you might like to contribute to it. And I know, I know they wanted beauty tips and fashion hints and romantic short stories. And so I thought, well, now is my chance. However, Beauty hints? No. All I did for, for my beauty routine, I went to Boots the Chemist, I bought the cheapest makeup, put it on my face, washed it off with soap. Well, you can't really write a column like that. Um, I certainly wasn't fashionable in those days because although I had a Saturday job, I didn't actually earn enough money to buy my own clothes. So my mum bought my clothes for me. And my mum's ambition was for me to be a little lady. Now, there isn't a teenage girl in the world who wants to look like a little lady. So I was very embarrassed by my pastel-coloured clothes. So I certainly felt I couldn't write about fashion. So that left romantic short stories. Well, I'd written heaps and heaps of short stories, but they weren't romantic. And I had a go but I just found it so difficult to take this sort of whole, oh, she looked up into his eyes and her heart started beating fast and his lips came down on hers. I just got the giggles trying to write that sort of thing. So I did something that was possibly a little bit arrogant. I thought I won't actually send them anything that they're asking for. I'll send them the sort of thing that I'd like to read about in a teenage magazine. So I wrote this story, which was heavily autobiographical, about a girl going to her first posh dance with her friends and how it was so exciting to start with and the girls spent ages and ages in the ladies' room doing each other's hair and borrowing each other's lipstick, practicing walking in their first really high heels and then the dance itself and how one of the girls got off with a really good-looking boy and then another girl got off with a really good-looking boy and then suddenly there's just the main girl, the narrator, me, 
standing there all by herself like a lemon with nobody to dance with. And I sort of wrote this funny story about all the little sort of ploys you use just to try and pretend you're having a good time when inside you're dying. And so I wrote this story, trying to make it as funny as possible, and sent it off to the box office number. Now, I think some lady or girl working on that potential magazine had had some similar sort of experience because it struck a chord with her. And within days, they wrote back to me and said they liked my story, they thought it funny, and they wanted to pay me. And this was absolutely astonishing. Now, they wanted to pay me three pounds, which even in those long ago days in the 1960s wasn't a lot of money, but I don't think I've ever earned any money since that has meant so much to me because it meant that someone actually thought I could write and that my writing was worth actually paying. So. What I did, you, you only get one chance like that, I bombarded them with stories and articles. And before long, DC Thompson's offered me a job at their head office in Dundee. And I got very excited about that, but I was a bit nervous too, because I was just 17 by this stage. I didn't know a single person in Scotland. But I thought, right, you only get one chance like this. So I got the sleeper train up to Dundee, and then I was meant to be booked into the Church of Scotland Girls Hostel because my mum thought, right, now that sounds the sort of place where they'll keep an eye on her. And when you get the sleeper train, you arrive in Dundee about six o'clock in the morning. It was freezing cold, and then everybody was talking on the platform. And I don't know how many of you here are from Dundee, but there's a particular type of Dundee accent that I couldn't understand a word anybody was saying. And I thought, heavens, how am I going to manage? And then I didn't know how far away the hostel was. Um, and so I had to take a taxi. And it, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it was the very first taxi I'd ever taken in my life, and I had no idea how much money it would cost. I had, I think my mum had given me five pounds, and I thought, what am I going to do if it's more than five pounds? But anyway, the taxi took me up Constitutional Hill to where, well, there are huge, great, slightly eerie Victorian houses, rather like the sort of houses you get in in horror films. And, and I found the one at the end, which was the Church of Scotland Girls Hostel. And I knocked on the door timidly. And eventually, the door opened, and it was the matron in her dressing gown, sort of peering at me. And, and so I introduced myself, and I said, I've come to live in the hostel. Now, something had gone wrong, because somebody was meant to put me in. But anyway, the matron hadn't heard of me, didn't know anything about it, and said, well, you can't stay here. We're completely full. And I probably looked as if I was going to burst into tears then and there on the spot, because she took pity on me. She invited me in. We had a cup of tea in the kitchen. And then she looked me up and down. And she said, well, you're not very big. I have got a camp bed. I think you could fit in that. But we've got to find somewhere to put you. And she thought a bit more. And then she suddenly said, I know, the linen cupboard. <laughs> now, the linen cupboard at the hostel was really not much bigger than your airing cupboard at home. 
But with a little bit of pushing, we managed to get the camp bed inside and me. And that was about it. And for the first three months of my life, until a girl moved out of the dormitory, I actually lived in a cupboard. <laughs> but it was a brilliant, brilliant thing because the hostel in those days was freezing cold in the winter because um, it had no central heating whatsoever. There was just a fire in the girls' sitting room. That was it. And so the only heated room was the linen cupboard because the hot pipes went through it to air all the linen. And so everybody wanted to be my best friend so they could squeeze in the cupboard with me. And some of the smaller girls would actually curl up on the shelves. And it was just like one of those Enid Blyton school, boarding school stories because we'd have midnight feasts. And the matron made sure that all the lights were switched out and the, and the actual electricity was switched off at half past ten. So very illegally and dangerously, we'd stick candles in hair rollers so we'd, we'd light our midnight feasts. And those were the times, I think, one of the happiest of my life. They were really wonderful. And I also loved working for DC Thompson's. Um, it was very exciting working. Well, I didn't work on the Teenage Magazine, but I wrote lots of articles for them. And I was thrilled to bits when it came out the following year because the two gentlemen that ran all the girls' magazines said, well, we're naming it after you. So, if any mums in the audience remember the wonderful Jackie magazine, I like to say I'm the Jackie that it was named after. And I, but I also worked on heaps of other magazines, including one weekly magazine called Red Letter. Perhaps you could ask your grannies if, you've ev if they've ever seen a copy of Red Letter. It was called a story magazine. It had heaps and heaps of stories. But it also had, possibly because of the name, Red Letter, it had a reader's letters page. But the only problem was we very seldom got any reader's letters. Um, so, as I was the junior journalist, it was my job, when necessary, to write up to eight reader's letters a week. And it was actually very good training for me because I had to keep pretending to be all these different characters and keep on thinking up different things that they could write in their letters. And because I showed willing at this, they thought, well, let's see if we can save a bit of money somewhere else. And at that time, they had a syndicated horoscope column, you know, what the stars foretell. And they looked in my direction and said, OK, you can write it. And I was thrilled to bits again, because I was very keen to write as much as I could. However, I don't know anything at all about astrology. And certainly, I, I wouldn't understand a star chart if you put it in front of me. So basically, what I did, I made it all up. Now, I'm born on the 17th of December. That makes me Sagittarius. So when I was writing the horoscope column, all Sagittarians were going to meet tall, dark, handsome strangers. They were going to come into lots of money. They were going to do wondrously well in their jobs. 
And um, certainly, um, I couldn't be as blatant as saying, and they're going to get a book published, but I would say, and um, creatively, their future looks sublime. <laughs> all these daft, daft things. And yet, the weird thing is, all these horoscope predictions have amazingly come true for me, which, you know, makes me feel thrilled to bits. And as I said, in those days, you know, my biggest ambition of all was to get a book properly published. And I never thought, all those years ago, that I would be sitting here with probably, there's my brand new book hiding away there, which is probably the 99th book I've had published. I've, I've actually written so many, I have genuinely lost count of how many books, which is, you know, really, really astonishing. However, even though I've written all these books, generally speaking, when people say my name, there is just one series of books that people think about, one particular character. And so, children generally smile when this particular character's name is mentioned. Some parents shake their head because she, they think she's a bad influence. She's been a very lucky character for me. Um, there are now one, two, three full-length books about her and one special little one. Um, there have been five television series about her and those of you who are big fans, actually there's going to be a brand new television series about her um, starting in January. And there have been two magazines about her and lots and lots of merchandising, that's stationery, hot water bottles, nighties and dressing gowns, cups and saucers. Girls, you can even get knickers with this character's name and face on. So who can guess who I'm talking about? Who? What? Tracy Beaker. And um, whenever I mention Tracy Beaker's name, I have to tell a silly but true story about how I got Tracy Beaker's name. And weirdly, this is a good 20 years ago. And I had decided I very much want to write a story about a fierce, feisty little girl who is stuck in a children's home, desperate to be fostered. And almost straight away uh, from getting that idea, I knew her first name was going to be Tracy. It just seemed a modern, bouncy sort of name. But then I needed to have her surname. And I sometimes find it quite difficult thinking up really good-sounding surnames, last names. And it seemed particularly important in this book because I knew that I wanted the title to be the story of Tracy, and then I wanted a surname that sort of fitted and yet had some kind of quirky, distinctive ring about it, and yet I didn't want it to sound too ridiculous. And I was thinking about this one morning when I was having my bath. Now, I don't know if any of you like to daydream in your bath. I'm a terrible daydreamer, and I just have to lie back in that lovely hot bath, and instead of getting on with things, I let my thoughts sort of whirl around. However, if you're thinking up a surname, it's not actually the most inspirational of rooms. 
I would be looking around this room thinking, okay, surname for Tracy, uh, Tracy Soap, no, Tracy Face Cloth, no, Tracy Tap, no, Tracy Toothbrush, no, Tracy Toilet, no, definitely not. And so I told myself, this is ridiculous. You're never, ever going to get a good surname for Tracy. Just get on with things. So I washed my hair. And then I don't have an elaborate shower attachment. When I wash my hair, I just put the shampoo on. And then I run the bath taps. And I keep an old Snoopy beaker on the end of the bath. And I just hold that under the taps and pour the water over my head. So I picked up the beaker and suddenly thought, aha, Tracy Beaker. So there you go. Authors can get ideas in all sorts of different places, even their bathrooms. So I am here to talk about my latest book, My Secret Diary. And um, I wonder, how many of you keep diaries? Quite a lot of you. And um, my friend Anna is here today with her friend Stephanie. They came to visit me in the author's yurt. And Anna, wonderfully, has got her own Jacqueline Wilson diary for this year. And I was having a little peep because I'm very nosy. And Anna's very artistic and has done all sorts of little funny drawings um, and very, very neat diary entries. And there are all sorts of Nick Sharrett bunnies and little pictures of different of my characters. And she's um, sort of personalised each one or put little sunglasses on the rabbits in the summer, all this sort of thing. So just so shows the potential for what you can do with the diary. Maybe next year I'll get a copy of the Jacqueline Wilson diary for 2010 and start filling it in this way. That would be, that would be fun. I've tried to keep a diary this year and I'm failing miserably at the moment. I've got so many blank bits that, and I can't remember what I did. So it rather looks as if my diary is petering out for this year, which is very shameful indeed. But when I was a girl, I did keep diaries quite regularly. And those of you who want any good writing tips, keeping a diary is really the best thing to do because if you get into the habit of writing a little bit each day, that is what you really need to be a writer. It's, it's all very well getting wonderful ideas, but if they're there in your head and not down on paper or on the computer screen, nobody else can share them. So I would suggest keeping a diary. Now, this is called my secret diary because it's based on the diary I kept when I was 14. And I had to be very careful that my mum didn't read it because my mum my mum thought that that sort of everything I did was her concern and I had to keep finding more and more ingenious hiding places so that she wouldn't see it and see what I was getting up to and I actually start in the book saying I've kept a diary on and off all my life when I was a little girl I had small let schoolgirl diaries I kept them in my sock drawer, madly thinking this was an amazing, amazingly inventive hiding place. I didn't really record any riveting secrets in my blotchy biro. Mummy bought me a girl comic. I think Joan of Arc is wonderful. Daddy and I went for a walk and I pretended to be a pony. Now, I didn't really show much writing promise when I was seven, eight, whenever I was writing those diary entries. And then I went to go on to say that 
I read the diary of Anne Frank when I was about 12. Who here has read the diary of Anne Frank? It's a beautiful, wonderful, inspiring book, isn't it? And I was so moved by this. And also, in, in my copy of um, the diary of Anne Frank, they had a photograph of Anne's actual diary, which was a small red and white check diary. And oh, I just ached to have a diary just like Anne's. I, she was really my, my sort of heroine, and I had a photograph of her on my bedside table. And you know, I used to say goodnight to her at night to show she what a sad girl I was. So I thought, I want to keep my diary. And um, I couldn't find any sort of journal that, that would look absolutely perfect. And um, I had read, now I wonder who's read a book called I Catch the Castle by Dodie Smith? Oh, great, some people have. Fantastic book, absolutely fantastic. And that is a fiction book, but it pretends to be this teenage girl's diary. And she starts off in a Woolworths notebook, but eventually she is given, um, about two-thirds of the way through the story, a manuscript book, a red leather manuscript book. And I thought this sounded absolutely wonderful. And I asked my mum if I could possibly have one for a Christmas present. And um, she sort of rolled her eyes and said, don't be so silly, because we were quite a poor family. And she said, why can't you use Harry's jotting pads? That was my dad, Harry. And he was a civil servant. And um, one of the rather naughty things he did was he used to bring home stationary office jotting pads for me to draw on or to, to write my stories in, which was you know, a bit naughty of him because they were government property, but I don't think anybody really minded. But um, they were quite unsatisfactory unsat as journals because they were just sort of um, stuck together with odd glue at one end. So if you wrote a couple of pages, it would all fall to bits. And I wanted a proper, proper diary. And um, I said, I need proper covers for my secret journal. I want it to be completely private, I said. Biddy, that's my mum, Biddy scoffed at me. She didn't believe in privacy, especially where I was concerned, but she was always inventive with my Christmas presents, even though we had very little money. She rose to the journal challenge. On Christmas Day, 1959, when I was just 14, so those of you who are good at mental arithmetic can work out exactly how old I am, she gave me a book, The Devil and Mary Ann by Catherine Cookson, I'd read the first two books about this tough little Tyneside girl and loved them. A filmgoer's annual with a special feature on Dirk Bogard. I was very fond of our Dirk. A pair of American tan nylons and my first white lace suspender belt. A Yardley Press powder compact in a gilt case and a proper journal. It wasn't quite a red leather two guinea job. It was grey plastic and it didn't cost a penny. Biddy worked as a bookkeeper for Prince Machines. They supplied some of these machine tools to Thailand. Their customers sent them a diary as a seasonal token. The lettering was all Thai and therefore meaningless to me, but it was easy enough to work out which page was 1st of January. I was thrilled with my diary. It was the size of a book so I had quite a lot of room to write in. 
hand, here is the actual diary. As you can see, it's not very attractive, and it is splitting down there, but it's not bad that it's still all in one piece. Oh, that, that sadly, that, that lovely bright brown hair was the look of my hair of 14, and we've changed a little bit since then. But I will read you, if I can read my own writing, the first entry on January the 1st. And you can tell I've not cheated because I've actually quoted this word for word. All the quotes from my diary in my secret diary are actually, I, I so wanted to tinker around and make myself a better writer than I actually was, but I decided to be absolutely true to my 14-year-old self. So I say, on 1st of January, 1960, Ever since I was little, I have loved writing stories and poems. I would get an idea, buy a new exercise book, and start writing industriously, thinking myself the creator of a masterpiece. But by the end of the week, I would think of another better idea and repeat the rigmarole. But now I have the better idea, dear, I wish you didn't keep using better idea, better idea, of writing a diary, as I hope I will never get sick of my own life. Besides, think of all the people who've been made famous by their diaries. Samuel Pepys, Fanny Burney, Marjorie Fleming, Anne Frank, and then I go, etc., etc. Now, I didn't know any other famous people. I was just pretending. So why shouldn't I? I'm only very ordinary, admittedly, but interesting things do sometimes happen to me. But perhaps the real reason of me starting this diary is because I find it, and then I give a little quote from Anne Frank, irresistible, the pleasure of popping down my thoughts from time to time on paper. And so I did keep up my diary all the way through till that summer, and in my secret diary, which in the front, there are all sorts of embarrassing photographs of me at 14 and me with my best friend Chris and with my mum and dad and um, me at my dancing class, all sorts of things. And then because it's actually the sequel to my first volume of autobiography, Jackie Daydream, I thought it would be fun to suggest to Nick that we do, just like in a comic, the story so far, and then all the little bits that happened to me in Jackie Daydream. Nick has actually done like a comic strip. And then at the end, there's all different things about what happened to me as a teenager, including working for Jackie Magazine there. And then here, Nick's drawn me absolutely swamped by lots and lots and lots of my fictional characters. And um, sometimes lovely children write to me saying, I am definitely your number one fan. Well, I think I should hold a competition. Who is Jacqueline's real number one fan? If you can work out each and every character in this picture, because I'll tell you a secret, I can't. I know most of them, but um, some of them do absolutely I should just have to have another look and see if I can work out each and every one. So I've divided the book up into different chapters, all about my best friends and my family. Thank goodness my true best friend, Chris, 
I was very nervous about giving her a copy of the book because I do write all sorts of things about her family and they're all nice things. I mean, I really, really was fond of Chris and her family, but I did wonder what she'd think about it, but thank goodness she did enjoy it. In fact, she's bought quite a few copies to give to all her friends because it's her sort of time of fame too. And then I, I write about school and um, at the end, I write all about this magical summer holiday in Cornwall where I met my first boyfriend, you know. A lot of the book, I am so embarrassing and so silly. I keep getting crushes on boys and I don't even know them. And then I think they're absolutely wonderful. And then next week I've forgotten them and I've gone on to another one. So any girl um, who feels embarrassed, you know, that, that she hasn't got a boyfriend or that she gets mad crushes on people. If you read my secret diary, you will be so comforted because I was the dippiest girl ever. But also, I did, I did read a great deal and I did desperately, desperately, seriously try hard with my writing. Almost every diary entry, I'm starting a story, working on a story, trying to, to take it um, as, as sensibly and professionally as, as I could. Um, and sometimes I, I sound overly earnest. Um, I write in March about my writing is it just a form of escapism? Am I burying my head in the sand like an ostrich? Is my writing just an adolescent craze? No, it can't just be a phase. Well, I've settled it that at least I'm serious about my writing. But is it any good? Is it? Oh, how I wish I knew. I have a reasonable grasp of writing, but am I any good? I mean, really good. I keep underlining all these words. I just don't know. I want very much to prove to myself that I can write good material. I would like very much to hold a finished story in my hands. So I'm not going to be weak-willed and sit here wishing. I'm going to think of a plot and start writing. Blast homework. Oh, I thought I was so sophisticated, swearing. Blast everything. I must prove it to myself. Oh, let me just think of a good plot, some realistic characters, and let me produce a really good book. And actually, every, every sort of six months, when I'm at the start of a new book, I do think, oh, let me think of a good plot, some realistic characters, and let me produce a really good book. And before we, we start on the questions, I have just today being given a very early copy of my brand new book, which is coming out in October. So I thought, tra-la, I would actually show it to all of you. And it's called Hetty Feather. And those of you near enough to see the cover will see a oh, lovely, lovely Nick Sherritt artwork, but it all looks a bit different. The story is about Hetty, and she's in very strange uniform, and she looks very old-fashioned because the story is actually set in Victorian times. And Hetty is a foundling. She's brought up in this foundling hospital. But she doesn't, when she's a baby, her mum can't look after her. She doesn't know who her mum is. And that's one of the threads that runs right through the story. Will Hetty ever find out who her mother is? But when in, in Victorian times, and indeed in the 18th century too, but I'm centering into Victorian times, if you couldn't look after a baby yourself, didn't have a husband or were very poor or whatever, 
poor mothers would actually take their babies to the foundling hospital and the, they would be examined and if the child seemed healthy, all right, then the foundling hospital would say, well, we are the child's parents now, you give up all your responsibilities, off you go. And it must have been, imagine how awful that must be. There's your baby, you love it very much, but you can't look after it, so you hand it over to the foundling hospital. But they didn't bring up the babies or the toddlers. Almost immediately, they would change the child's name and then send them out for five years to be fostered. And so Hetty, from naught to five, lives in the country with her foster family and has a wonderful time. She adores her foster brother, Jem. And they live in this tiny village and life is very much the same day after day until, astonishingly, a travelling circus arrives. And Jem helps squeeze Hetty into the circus and she falls in love with this wonderful, sparkly lady in a pink sticky-out dress who actually rides horses in the circus. She's called Madame Adeline. And she actually, as part of her act, lets Hetty go and... Um, sit on the horse in front of Madame Adeline and be part of the show. And this just means so much to Hetty. But then she's taken away from this cosy, happy life in the country at five years old and she has to go back to the foundling hospital. And imagine how weird it must be to, to be used to having lots of brothers and sisters around you, lots of fun, playing around, doing whatever really you want to do, and then suddenly you are sent to an institution. You are separated, if you're a girl, from all the boys. The boys would be in one wing, the girls the other. They would never see each other apart from maybe peeping at each other in chapel. And the rules are so rigid that even the little children were not allowed to go to the toilet when they wanted to. They had to go at the allotted hour. Imagine how difficult that would be. They have to get up at a certain time. They have to do everything, um, absolutely all of them together. Whenever they walked anywhere, they had to march one, two, one, two, like that. They were given a good education. And they were mostly treated fairly, although they were whipped if they were naughty. And my Hetty is very fierce, very feisty, very funny. And it's quite clear that she's not going to settle in and just be a good, obedient child and be very happy to be trained to be a servant girl at 14. My Hetty is a rebel. And she has, she has some fun. And she makes some friends in the foundling hospital. But then, on the very special day of Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, she seizes an opportunity and runs away. And then you have to see what actually happens next to her on the streets of London. And then I was writing this book last year, and I actually started it when I was ill. And it was wonderfully diverting. Instead of worrying about myself in, in present times, I could just read all these different Victorian books and then make up my own character and live in her world. And that's, that's I think, the most important thing, the most lovely thing about being a writer. You don't just live your ordinary life, you have this whole extra life too. And I do 
I promise you try hard with all my books, but Hetty Feather is my special book. So I do hope when it comes out that you all enjoy it. Now, you've all been sitting here as good as gold, and we've got about 10 minutes left for questions. So I'm actually as blind as a bat, even my glasses on. So Colm is going to actually pick out which of you is to ask the question, and then a mic will come. Don't worry about it. You just, just ask your ordinary question into the mic so everybody can hear. So if you've got a question, stick your hands up now. Okay. Um, the little girl with the red hair just here in the green. Just in the green there on the left-hand side. What was your first book you ever got published? The first book I ever got published, and it certainly wasn't the first book I'd written, right from when I was living in the hostel, I wrote several full-length books, but they weren't good enough to be published. So if any of you want to be writers, don't think that you're, unless you're incredibly lucky, you're not going to get published straight away. But the first book I actually got published was quite uncharacteristically about a boy. It was called Ricky's Birthday. And I used to say, when I gave talks like this, that um, that's about all I know about it, because I'd long ago lost my only copy of it. But amazingly, a girl and her mum in the audience wrote down the title, and I don't know if they went on eBay or something, but a few weeks later, they sent me my own copy of Ricky's birthday, which they said they'd tracked down for me. I was so moved by that. It was so sweet of them. So, bless them. Um, but and now I can say that I could reread Ricky's birthday and see what it was all about. And it's quite a sweet story, but I don't think we'll be eager to have it back into print. <laughs> and then just right at the back here on the right-hand side, girl with the white t-shirt. That's you. <laughs> Put your hand up. There we go. Why do you enjoy writing? Why do I enjoy writing? That's actually a very profound question. Sometimes I enjoy writing. Other times, and nowadays I write first thing in the morning and I wake up and I think, right, I've got to do my writing. And actually, mostly, I'd much sooner do reading or, or just anything. I'd sooner do housework sometimes than actually start writing. And I just stare at the blank page and think, help, what am I going to do? But my early DC Thompson's training stands me in good stead. Because if you're a journalist, you can't afford to have writer's block. You jolly well have got to get words on paper. So I pick my pen up and start writing no matter what. And then, five minutes in, it takes over. And I'm absolutely in my own imaginary world. And that is terribly enjoyable. It's wonderful. However, it can be a bit embarrassing if you write in public. Because yesterday, on the plane coming up to Edinburgh, before the plane had taken off, the air hostess was going up backwards and forwards, checking that we all had our seatbelts done up. And I, I didn't hear this. I had my notebook, and I was writing. And then she leant over to say, have you got your seatbelt done up? And because I was deep in this new story I'm writing, I jumped so much <laughs> like that. I made everybody laugh. But um, to have that whole imaginary world that is whirling around inside your head is the most exciting thing. So I'm very, very glad I'm a writer. 
and just uh, up here, yeah, there, if you just wave, can you wait? There we go. What inspired you to write Vicky Angel? Ah, Vicky Angel is one of my very sad books. And yet, it's funny, lots of girls, I think, quite like sad books. It's, it's about a girl who, right at the very beginning chapter, she and her best friend, Vicky, um, are, are messing around. Vicky's actually being quite nasty to my girl, narrator Jade. And then they're crossing a road, and it's absolutely awful because Vicky's not looking where she's going. She's laughing, she's running across the road, and then she gets knocked down by a car, and she actually is killed. And so it's quite unusual, right at the start of the book, to have somebody killed. And I did think quite carefully about how I was going to manage this book, because then Vicky comes back, or seems to, whichever you want to think, as a ghost. But she's not a sad, plaintive, mournful ghost or a scary ghost. She is just herself. It's just nobody else can see her, only Jade. And for a long time, it's quite comforting to Jade that Vicky, her friend, is still there near her. But then, as the months go by, Jade isn't making new friends. She's not concentrating on her schoolwork. She's just caught up more and more with Vicky. <clears throat> as you read the book, you do sort of worry about what's going to happen. But I hope by the end of the book, it has a kind of happy ending. And I got inspired by it because nowadays, when very sadly a child or a teenager gets run over and killed, it's become the habit to put lots of flowers and little teddies and little notes from their friends on the spot where they're killed. And um, I was just walking past a school where somebody had done exactly this. And I just thought this, this was so moving that that image stayed in my head. And so being a writer, I turned it into Vicky Angel. It's funny, though, because whenever girls write to me, they, they often give me a whole list of the books that they like. And I think nine out of ten girls write down, I don't think they pronounce it like this, Vicky Angle rather than Vicky Angel. So, so in, in, with my family, I, I sometimes call her Vicky Angle <laughs> still. Okay, another question. And just at the front here, the girl with the coloured plaits. If you can keep your hands up as well, I know there's an awful lot of you, but I will try and be fair. What's your favourite book you've written so far? Ah, um, well, I will have to say Hetty Feather because it's my new baby and I'm very, very fond of her. Um, I also like, I like some of my sad books too. I like The Illustrated Mum. I did try very, very hard with that one. And also I am, even though it's even sadder, fond of my sister Jodie too. And then, of course, I have to pick the Tracy Beaker books because Tracy might beat me up if I didn't pick her. <laughs> <laughs> and then right up the back here with the dark jacket. What inspired you to write Jackie Daydream? Well, it's... Um, I actually, I'll be truthful, although I'm very much aware that, that my, my lovely publishers are, are here today, but I happened <laughs> to hear that they had asked somebody else to write a little 
biography of me. And I thought, hmm, well, I'd like this person that they'd chosen to write about me. But I thought, but the only person who really, really, really knows about me is me. And then I thought mostly children and teenagers aren't that interested in what's happened to me as a grown-up. Mostly, they'd want to know, did I get on with my mum and dad? Did I like school? What were my favourite books? Um, did I have a boyfriend when I was a teenager? All this sort of stuff. And so I thought, why don't I write my own autobiography? And Jackie Daydream from, was from the very day I was born, you see what brilliant memory I have, right up to the year I was 11. And then there's my secret diary, which does cover some of the years 11 to 13, but it's mostly from when I was 14. And I have sometimes wondered whether I might um, complete the, the whole thing, maybe later on in a few years' time, and write about my time in Dundee, which would be good fun. Might have to censor a few bits, though. <laughs> and uh, can you just go around to the girl there in the pink? The back. If you can keep your hand up, please, so that they can see it. Yeah. Just right at the edge on the aisle. What's the book you've enjoyed writing most? Um, let me think. The book that I found great fun to write was one called The Bed and Breakfast Star, which has got a very cheery character, Elsa, in it. She's, some of my characters are a bit grumpy and naughty, like Tracy, and some of my characters are quite sad and, and leading very unhappy lives. Elsa's, Elsa's life is certainly not a piece of cake, but she's very chirpy and enjoys herself. And she wants to be a comedian, so she's forever telling jokes. And as I was starting to write The Bed and Breakfast Star, I thought I need lots and lots of really corny, funny jokes um, for Elsa to keep absolutely coming out with and driving everybody crackers all around her. But the thing is, I really didn't know many jokes. So I thought, well, who is it that knows jokes? Children do. And so the whole six months I was writing the Bed and Breakfast Star, whenever I went to a, do an event like this, afterwards when I was doing a signing, I'd say, do you know any good jokes? And any that really appealed, I wrote them down and used them for Elsa. So it was as if I had loads and loads of children helping me write that book. So that was the most enjoyable. Okay, we're just going to have time for two more. So first of all, uh, this girl here in the green with the glasses. Quite a few of your books are about the Victorian time. What makes you write them about it? Um, I've always been really interested in the Victorians. I know some children don't like the Victorians. Whenever I go into schools and I see some of the <coughs> Victorian implements and a big picture of Queen Victoria, I say, oh, you lucky things, you're doing a Victorian project. And they always look at me and go, oh, Victorians, yuck, boring. And so partly, um, I try to infuse children about the Victorians and show that although in some ways their lives were very different to us, actually they were ordinary, funny, weird human beings just as we are. 
And also, my daughter, when she was very little, she loved the Victorians. In actual fact, I think she got interested in them first. And when she was really little, about five, I suppose, we used to play this Victorian game for ages. When we're sort of going around the supermarket, and you know how boring it can be, and so we play this pretend game together. And she was a Victorian lady, posh lady, and I was her servant girl. Now, this was extremely artful of Emma because she would tell me what to do and I had to go and curtsy and say, yes, miss, certainly miss, but um, it kept us amused and, and we had good fun doing this. In fact, I've kept lots of um, Emma's sort of early stories and all the pictures that she used to illustrate them with and they were nearly all Victorian. So um, I can't wait until I, I... Emma's grown up now, obviously, but I shall enjoy giving her a copy of Hetty Feather and see if she still likes the Victorians. Okay, and the very last question, and just this little girl here with the grey. Yeah. I think it's grey. Uh, yeah, just along there. Um, how long ago was your first book published? The first book was published, I've actually truthfully lost sight of when it was. Because when, when you get as old as me, you can't remember all the years ago. But... I know that when the first book came out, and it wasn't in many bookshops, it wasn't in a W.H. Smith's, um, it was just in a very few specialist bookshops. But the first time I saw a book with my name on it in a bookshop, I just, I felt so proud. It was well, the second best moment of my My first was having my lovely daughter and giving birth to her. And, and then the, the second proudest moment, and almost as special, was seeing my first book. And each time, all these many, many books later, it's still a big treat when I see my book there. And sometimes people ask me, perhaps having heard I'm ill, seeing I'm a bit grey and lined, is, they say, you know, are you going to write any more books? And I always say, yes, I am. I'm going to carry on writing and writing and writing because I love it so. And I love talking to you all too. So thank you all very much for coming here today. You've been wonderful <laughs> Thank you all very much for your questions and your time. If you all please just stay in your seats, there will be an announcement about how the signing is going to work and that will just give Jacqueline some time to get next door um, so we can sit down and get ready for the signing. Can you please give a big warm Edinburgh welcome as well and thank you to Jacqueline. <laughs>